Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? verdict? Welcome to the John and Jordan on Justice podcast, your weekly deep dive into personal injury and wrongful death law. All rise. rise. Touching on everything torts, legal tech, trying cases to verdict, and the outlandish stories that come with them. And now, here are your hosts, John Fisher and Jordan Reed David. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us. For those of our uh, few but loyal listeners, sorry for the hiatus. We've been slammed being lawyers because we're lawyers first, podcasters <clears throat> 11th. But uh, yeah. thanks for joining us. John and I really enjoyed doing this. We hope you get some value out of it. Uh, today, we wanted to primarily talk about kind of like the trial after a trial or really the, the ability to collect after winning a trial. That's what we'll spend the bulk of our time talking about. But it would be, I think, inappropriate of us to overlook some pretty massive news in the legal world, you know, today or earlier this week, depending on when you're listening, uh, with the the judge basically vacating the conviction of Adnan Syed, uh, the person kind of made famous, so to speak, on the serial podcast. Later, HBO did, you know, a docu-series about it, so to speak. Um, it's a pretty compelling story. It's fucking tragic. I think he's been in there behind bars over 20 years wrong yeah convicted. i think it was 23 years yeah i mean any day that justice is served is a great day and that guy deserves all the blessings he's got <clears> coming <throat> his way but i mean his his life in every practical sense has been stolen from him and i can only hope even though i'm a stranger from afar that he's able to put the pieces together and, and elevate the the rest of the time he's got and um it got john and i talking about the subject of wrongful convictions obviously there's a component primarily through the criminal justice system but there's also a civil component to it. You know, lawsuits tend to follow wrongful convictions. Many, I, th- I don't know if all, but many states have wrongful conviction compensatory statutes designed by their legislatures to pay people for time wrongfully spent behind bars. Of course, there's issues with that too, right? As they as they tend to cap those damages on how much money you can recover. But that got us thinking, and I've reached out to an old colleague of mine who for the past, I don't know, she'll tell us when she comes on, four, five, six, seven years uh, she she relocated to Chicago, and all she's been doing, as far as I'm aware, is wrongful conviction work, and primarily on the civil side, getting these people financial compensation. So we're going to try and have her come on. I think she'd be a remarkable guest, even if no news happened. But with this news especially, I think the timing is fitting. Yeah, and just just because I know this fact only because I looked it up, is that Florida does have a statute that provides for compensation for wrongful convictions. It's fifty thousand dollars a year. That's what your life is worth, according to the Florida legislature. So you're wrongfully convicted. You get $50,000 per year up to $2 million. So that's 20 years. So if you spend 45 years in prison wrongfully convicted, you get $2 million. Yeah, and this is something I want to talk to. Her name is Spence. I I want to talk to Spence about in more detail. But just it gets me thinking. It's like obviously politicians don't run on a I'm soft on crime campaign, Uh, at least not any that I've ever seen. But here we're talking about verifiably innocent people who are wrongfully convicted. Mm -hmm. And nevertheless, you've got politicians passing laws. I don't want to say arbitrarily. I'm sure some debate and thought went into it. But, you know, imposing these exceedingly low things. And and I'm not suggesting uh, any, you know, bad faith here. But it's just like one of these things. It's like, well, how much money is it worth to have a human being's life taken away for a year, let alone 10 or 23 in this case? 50 yeah. grand a year fuck that I mean, nobody would take that i don't think there's any person that, that would say oh that's great i'll, I'll gladly take fifty thousand dollars to be in a prison for a year with everything that comes yeah. with it like that's 
Well, so, and also it, we're not dealing in the abstract where it's like an actual negotiation. Oh, I'll go for a year and come out. You know, these are people who never had a choice. The choices right. were taken from them. And I, I don't know. All of these things are what we'll talk to Spence about. But uh, she's a genius and she's very talented at everything she's ever done, at least that I've seen. And uh, I think she'd be a really good person to have on for that. So we're going to we're working on that. I've got to call in to her this week. But let's talk a little bit about John's favorite topic, which is, all right, we won on a piece of paper. Now what? How now do I what? actually get money from my clients? So, yeah, I so I, obviously the, you know, there's there's a there's great elation and joy that comes with getting a jury verdict. Right. And sometimes jury verdicts after the resulting jury verdict, you know, negotiations start. Um, and sometimes they quickly resolve. The insurance company will pay you, you know, decent value on the case. You sometimes the judgment, you know, but there's various aspects about the case. Right. And some of the I mean, I'm which I'm sure everyone is the basic ones is, you know, filing motions for to tax costs, filing motions for attorney's fees. Um, obviously in, in Florida, we have the proposal for settlement statute. Um, I know in some other States, um, what is it? California has the 998 or 980. I think it's 998 is the, their equivalent of their, their proposal for settlement here in Florida. So you gotta, you know, you gotta file those motions and you have to do so within 30 days, right? So after the verdict, you want to make sure you do that. Now, obviously you may be dealing with, if you prevailed, right, you, your motions for new trial, um, from the defense and then ultimately an appeal if they decide to take one and you know depending on the case you know you may have uh, not a pro- I wouldn't say a problem but it can it can become a pain in the ass to to try to collect name and, a case where it wasn't I, the only time that I can recall for us where after a favorable verdict it wasn't a pain in the ass to collect was when we proposed we took the initiative with our clients blessing to offer the insurance company essentially an opportunity to settle for less than the face value of the verdict. And they, and they took that opportunity. Right. We, every so other case. It, yeah. Didn't. It, it didn't. And I think to, to Jordan's point, what just to give the listeners the benefit of that is we got a $2.1 million verdict on a minor child, a slip and fall case against a bowling alley. There was only a million dollar policy. I think uh, their, their best offer was 25 K we ended up, I think we wanted to settle for 125 k but ultimately got a $2.1 million verdict. Afterwards, the, the defense counsel we worked with was an, is an amazing, um, was an exceptional defense lawyer, like great to work with, very collegiate. Like I'm, I still talk to him today. So we have that good relationship. But what he had told us was like, look, we found an excess policy, you know, kind of found it. Um, I, I don't think he intentionally withhold held that, but I think they did this that for another million dollars. So instead of one million and now it's two million, the verdict's two point one. We did have a proposal for settlement. We were going to be entitled to fees and costs, but the costs were relatively low. Um, so maybe it was another four hundred. We said maybe it's four hundred grand on top. So right, two point five. So we said, look, you know, they filed a motion for new trial, not really a good basis to win. And we said, look, pay us $2 million, the policy, 10 to the policy limits, and we'll accept it. And that's what they did. And that was the... <clears throat> I, I, I got to tell you, I, I think, like, the more I'm thinking about this, like, even here in this moment, I feel like this is a big reason why there are lawyers out there capable of trying cases successfully who don't. Because I think they probably have earlier in their career, and they got discouraged or dissuaded because of the post-verdict journey that they have to go on defending appeals fighting mm-hmm. over fees, reconstructing timesheets, whatever the fuck, uh, all frustrating. But, you know, I think that's probably a big deterrent for many lawyers out there. Yeah. 
And and I mean, if you've and, had to go through it, I don't know anybody that's done it with a smile on their face. You know. Yeah, I mean, you know, we just, you know, for instance, as a, by way of example, we we tried a case in 2017, uh, lost, went on appeal, came back, we won a new trial, we got a new trial, got a favorable result. <clears throat> now we're there's that that interplay between can you attach pre-proposal for settlement costs? Obviously, the Supreme Court ruled that prejudgment interest is not allowed under the I think the white was the old case, but the, I forget the name of the new case. So, but this issue hasn't really been decided. But the chief judge wrote a dissent of why it should apply, and so we're going to have to litigate that issue, which would likely go to the Fourth District Court of Appeals and may reach its way to the Supreme Court on its second trial on a crash that occurred in 2015. So think about it; it's been seven years, you know. And it's not, and the, the reason why not you literally, but like think about the clients, yeah, you know, in these situations. It's like these calls get so I feel terrible because you call a client, you're like congratulations or whatever. They're in trial with you. They were right there. They saw it. Oh my God, we won! And then you have to <clears throat> temper expectations and be like, look, this could be another two, three years. It's not like we don't tell them that before trial, but once that number comes back and it's not a piece of paper, it feels like, and understandably right. so, that there's a sense of entitlement. Where's my money? And it's like. That's only half the battle, you know. Right, and I and I think one of the so so the most important things you want to do when you get the verdict, file your motion for costs, motion for attorney's fees, and your motion to entry final judgment. And if you have a third party case in Florida, meaning you're suing the driver of a vehicle, file a motion to implead or not implead. Um, no, a motion, the to add yeah, to to, the to to add the insurance company directly because under the, under the non-joinder statute, we aren't allowed to directly file against them. You want to add them in so you can attach against the insurance proceeds. Um, those need to be done. And the reason why you want the judgment entered, well, one, you get the judgment entered, you get um, interest, statutory right? Interest. Statutory interest from that point forward. What's interesting is that the same is true for attorney's fees. From the date of entitlement, right? You don't have to determine the amount. From the date of entitlement to the time it's paid, you are entitled to interest. And I don't think a lot of defense lawyers know this because we have a case where I have literally already had like four hearings on costs, you know, and, and when I tell you it's the most frustrating thing, like the court already awarded us costs, for example, and I, I, I miscalculated when I totaled up four numbers and I put it in the order and I'm like, look, there, it's off by like 180 bucks, you know, can we just agree to put this in? And OC's like, no. We don't agree. Yeah, Scrivener's error, go fuck yourself. Yeah, you know, and, and to me that's like, you know, so – it, it, in a way, <clears throat> it's frustrating, but in a way, it's also good because they're just sore losers. You know, they thought they were going to win. They come in beating their chest, and then they lose, and they turn into petty, well, sore losers. And yeah, you know that's, what? what it really tells me is that more often than not, these people are fighting for the sake of fighting. They're not right. fighting to win. Well, they get they get paid right. to fight. They get paid to fight. But what's interesting about that is also there's um, you also are entitled to interest on your costs, right? So if they're fighting you on that, and so from the time you paid money for the costs up until the time, you know, so basically it's like when you actually incurred it, like, you know, if you paid the cost from that date, you get interest, same statutory interest on a final judgment all the way up until the time in which it is paid. So that's, that's kind of interesting because, you know, they want to keep fighting and keep working. They're actually doing more detriment to their client because it's well, costing them the, more money. How about one example where we just kept pushing judgment was entered. We pushed, we, you know, whether you call it proceeding supplementary or whatever point is post judgment discovery, the defendant had to resit for a deposition solely to determine his financial wherewithal to satisfy the judgment. Right. I mean, 
how fucking annoying is that for him? Because his insurance company didn't do the right thing. And, uh, you know, honestly, in that case, he ended up, uh, you know, his business ended up in bankruptcy and everything. So, you know, insurance companies not doing the right thing. And even after a judgment dragging it out, it only helps them by holding on right. to the money. It doesn't help their insurance. So, so I think that, so one thing, obviously, look, there's, there's lawyers that focus primarily on collections work, right? You know, it's a very, it's a niche practice because the proceeding supplementary in Florida is something you can kind of do <clears throat> after you've discovered where there are attachable assets, right? So the first thing you want to do is, so once you get your judgment in place, you get your entitlement to cost and attorney's fees, then you're going to file subsequent motions to set the, determine the amount of costs and then the, the amount of attorney's fees. And I know for me as a personal injury lawyer, like I don't take down my time all the time. Right. That's a defense lawyer thing. I don't get paid to, to track time. So a lot of times I have to go back, review the docket, review the records, look at how much time I'm spending on each one and kind of rebuild and recreate my time, which I probably lose time. I, I probably lose between 50 and 100 hours, I would say, if on, on the cases that are litigated for four years. I, would I probably assume, lose that yeah, amount. It tends to lean but where you're <clears> But here's what you can do. So you want to do two things. One, you want to, once you get the judgment in place, you want to serve discovery to the other side, basically in aid of execution, to the extent the insurance company's not paying, right? Um, and you can find out where all their money is, right? That's the individual, the corporation, whatever. Find out what all their attachable assets are. And then the number two is once you get entitlement to attorney's fees, you can serve attorney fee discovery. And what I re request is the, de the defense lawyer's timesheets. Because you are entitled under the law in Florida to be provided the defense lawyer's time There's sheets. There's case law on that, right? Yeah, there is case law. Well, case. The, the only reason and way that you wouldn't be entitled to it if they weren't contesting your attorney's fees, which, but when are they ever not going to do that? So right. if they're contesting it, you know. They contest court reporter fees for costs, for Christ's right. sake. So. Oh, no, no. I thought this was my most interesting one. They, they said I wasn't entitled to filing fee. Because it's not in the uniform advisory taxation of costs. So the they cost said, to bring the lawsuit, they said we couldn't that, Yeah, they said that was not a reasonably necessary cost. Even though I can't, if I don't pay that, I can't file a lawsuit. Uh, but, like, that's the, the length way, of which... Spoiler, the judge disagreed with them. Right, yeah. yeah. Judge was like, that's not even a thing. Um, so, so you want to get that in place, and then you obviously want to start rebuilding your time. And, and so, really, this kind of kind of what happens is... And I'll give you just like two recent examples, one of which, you know, the insurance company's like, hey, like, do you want to mediate? And, you know, they'll mediate the case. And a lot of times, like, for instance, on the one trial we had, it was a $10,000 policy. They offered $2,900 before we filed, $6,500 in suit. And then they ultimately said, OK, we'll pay the policy. And I said, oh, no, uh, this there is no policy. Right. This is an open case. You've had plenty of information to tend to the policy limits and on 10K, you know, with tw over twenty thousand dollars of medical bills, not including non-economic damages. We're just going to go to trial and take a shot. <clears throat> we go to trial. We got a, a two hundred and twelve thousand dollar verdict, which obviously is, you know, over 20 times what they were offering. And. The we served a proposal for settlement at seventy five thousand, which they obviously couldn't accept because then they had to pay extra contractuals, which sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. So they now they're like, you know, they proposed mediation and it was unsuccessful. Right. And so now we're going the long way, which is we've got to go um, with our attorney's fees. We're putting that in before we're retaining an expert. We're going to have an evidentiary hearing. The court's going to rule and we're going to get all that put together. And I'm and I'm literally when I say I'm going to tax every single bit of every single dollar that I can to the penny and interest and all this. And of course, they're opposing interest. And I have a case directly on point that's binding. You know, it's just it's very interesting. And that's that's the fight kind of doesn't a, stop. I think that's does. the takeaway is like 
there's there has to be people out there who try case or want to try cases or spy to be lawyers who try cases and they think mistakenly and it's okay but i think it's like good to share the news just because you win on tra at trial it's not like you know in the criminal context if you get an acquittal for someone for years in south florida in particular there was like a debate because you would get an acquittal for someone and they would bring the person if they were in custody before trial back to jail to like process them out there was a whole thing like what the fuck i'm acquitted you don't have the right to take my body back so there was like litigation over that but the reality is like broadly speaking in criminal if you win a trial your, your client goes home that's the win that's the collection mm -hmm. civil all you have is a piece of paper that says at some point you were in a courtroom and you won and now it's this whole other saga and so you know from a client education and awareness standpoint it's important we're still not in control it's not like i can tell the client hey we just hit for two million they'll pay 1.75 if you'll take it sometimes i mean john you know it, the insurance company still has that leverage they will overtly through their lawyers or adjusters sometimes threaten oh we're going to drag this out we're going to take appeals you know this will take mm -hmm. three years i mean so it's it's deplorable frankly but it's the realities of doing this kind of work you know right and i think the only way we can counteract that is they got to pay interest right so yeah. you know we've got a case where they're taking an appeal and they haven't posted an appellate bond it's a multi-million dollar recovery so until that bond is posted you know and and i'm going against an insurance company I'm, I want to know where their attachable assets are. I'm going to start garnishing bank accounts. I'm, you know, my goal and dreams as a lawyer is one of these insurance companies or big defendants who they drop the balls. I, I, get, a, I get a proceeding supplementary. I get a breakdown order, and I go with the sheriffs with a tractor trailer, and we're just loading up their whole I wants to stand throw. on the courthouse steps and speak I want to like and sell uh, all their stuff. Auctioneer selling yeah. off trucks and flatbeds. And, say the, and, and, say, and, and be like, if your insurance company protected you, this wouldn't happen. Guess good luck in your bad faith case, though. You know, I, I don't need to wait for that. So it's, you know, and, and that's it's not a it's that's not a like a bravado thing. Like I really because I despise having to go through those hoops. And when you make me go through those hoops, I'm going to just I'm going to, you know, burn it down. I mean, we so had can I I want to switch gears just for a minute because there's like a little news that came across my Twitter feed here. And it's uh, related to something I'm passionate about as a hobby, which is poker, but also it's a legal thing. So I don't know for people out there, anybody who used to play online poker years ago before what people in the poker world call Black Friday when like DOJ shut it down. Um, people haven't been able to play mostly in mostly the United States ever since. They're a small collective group like Michigan, whatever, where people can play, but generally they can't. And one of the reasons was the Wire Act, this federal law that forever had been thought to apply to everything from sports gambling to online gambling of any kind, including poker. And that if you move money back and forth, you're somehow committing a federal offense, which is obviously scary. Nobody wants to do that. So for the past couple of years, uh, some gaming operators have been seeking basically declaratory relief, filing deck actions to have the courts determine whether or not the wire act actually applies to online poker because DOJ was like very vague, very ambiguous for years, ever since the 2011 Black Friday. So it was like people didn't, these operators didn't want to operate in this cloud of uncertainty. Well, a judge, I think today the news broke, ruled in favor of the gaming operators and basically <clears throat> declared that, uh, the, hey, DOJ, the Wire Act does not apply to online poker, online gambling of any kind, except for sports gaming, I think, sports gambling. So... We'll see where the ripple effects are, but it's a big win for the poker industry, the gambling industry, and, and you know gambling enthusiasts. But more importantly, as a lawyer, 
I think it's a really important win that a judge stood up and said, look, DOJ, you can't have these archaic laws. I mean, the Wire Act was passed. I don't know when, but I, I know this well before high-speed internet and people were trying to play cards online. And I think it was never intended to cover, you know, online poker, but it was used as a as a sword and not a shield. And now uh, it looks like those days may be numbered. So that's yeah, pretty and, favorable. And just so you know, Justin pulled it up. The Wire Act is 1961. So Yeah, so, I mean, 60 clearly... What? Yeah, 61 years ago. And and the judge decided, yeah, it was the Rhode Island District Court is where the judge ruled because um, we actually pulled it up. I've got the benefit. I've got Justin in-house. He likes to pull yeah, up man. articles for me. You know, it's just it's just like Joe Rogan's podcast. You know, Justin, pull that up for me. Pull it up for me. Thank you. Um, but, no, evidently it says it says a declaratory judgment was given that the Department of Justice may not prosecute them for non-sports betting under the Wire Act. So it seems to me like it's still limited to like sports betting is a problem. Yeah, it's just they're cabining it to sports betting, but that means that you know online poker operators look. There's a lot of state legislators. So does that, that mean they're want, coming back? Like well, I think a lot of states want to legalize it. There's been like four or five that have. Sure, Justin can pull up the list, but they like don't pull their players because it's like, oh, do we want to cross state lines? I think with something like this, what you're going to see is the states that already currently offer it, like Nevada in state, New Jersey in state, Michigan, whatever, Pennsylvania, they might start pooling their player fields, which is better for the game. But now it might encourage other states who want the tax revenue to say, hey, fuck it, we'll legalize it now because we can pool with other players from around the country. And that's what it should be. Yeah. You so currently, Justin or Jordan, because uh, Justin, again, Mr. Fact pulls it up. There's, on the six, spot. Yeah, there's six states that now authorize legal online poker for real money. That's West Virginia, Delaware, New Jersey, Michigan, Nevada and Pennsylvania. You know, right. And I, mean, I think in those states, <clears throat> though, you're like limited to playing players within those states. So, you know, like you can't have a one tournament where no matter which of those states you reside in, you're playing in it. I think you're limited to your own player pool, which has its own disadvantages. Yeah, um, the game is better when there's diversity in the player pool. So I think it's look, it's a big, it's an important legal decision for the gaming industry. I know that's a small segment of the population, but it's a nice crossover between something I'm passionate about outside of the law yeah. and what I'm passionate about day to day, which is the I law. Mean, so I wanted to share that news. And it's a good thing that those states offer something for their citizens, other than the crippling depression of having to live there. You know, Mich <laughs> Michigan, Pennsylvania, West Virginia. No offense if anybody's from there, but. You know, uh, um, outside well, of Pennsylvania, outside what, sure. Harrisonburg and uh, Philly, you know, how much else going on? Oh, it's, well, I guess Pittsburgh. You know, too. speaking of uh, sports gambling, whatever happened, I, I want to look into, maybe we'll do a podcast on what happened to the Seminoles having their sports gambling compact. Remember there was like live for like two months and then it got pulled and shut down? Yeah, well, that was, I think, the, the other smaller casinos like banded together to like a monopoly issue yeah like anti-competition they were like you know i think one was the um what was the one that was like right by my house the shitty one off like douglas avenue um god what is the name i can't even think of it it's like miami you know i can't think of it. it's gonna come up but um, well justin maybe earmark that we'll look into it maybe we can do an episode on that because that was kind of an interesting oh, thing. magic city casino the that's ground. the that's the name of it i'm sorry um yeah, no, I think I'd like to find out because I really like to be able to do that. It was kind of fun, you know. Yeah, not to so say that I not that. to say that we condone sports betting or gambling. No, everybody should be responsible, and and you know if you got a gambling problem, don't do it. I'm just saying in general when the when gambling crosses into the law, it's an interesting topic to discuss, especially that one because a lot of people like the sports bet. You've got all these 
daily fantasy things. All these other states are offering sports betting now. So I didn't live in Florida when it passed, so I never got to use it. But I know some buddies that were like, oh, look, there's an app now and you can do it. And then they said they used it for a couple weeks and it disappeared. I never really looked into why because I don't live there. So I guess when we're trying to collect on our judgment, we collect gambling winnings from uh, (laughs) online poker to be happened in in non-violation of the Wire Act is what the point we're trying to make, you know. Um, All right. Well, I have nothing more to offer today. Uh, I got to get my kids here in a little bit. I know you have some responsibilities in that corner too. So um, I appreciate everybody joining us. And like I said, we're working on getting back some guests. I know early on in the podcast, we had them back to back to back. I think there's tremendous value in that. John and I both enjoy it. So we have some guests we're working on and some fun other topics. And we're going to do our best to start expanding the scope of what we discuss from beyond just the minutia of being a, a civil litigator and some t- a former criminal litigator and kind of delve into other things that John and I are interested in, whether yeah. it be cryptocurrency or something else. So. Entrepreneurship, you know, money, growth, development, all of those kind of fun things that, you know, we as individuals, because, you know, being a lawyer is great, but it, where's the business side to all of that and kind of, you know, in life as well. So let us know, you know, kind of in the comments or anything, what your viewers want us something to talk about, something to go through. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll try to add that into the mix. Okay. All right. Take care, everybody. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for checking out the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, consider leaving us a review and be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with John and Jordan, check out at on Justice pod on Instagram and Twitter or check out Discord for plaintiffattorneys.com to communicate with them and like-minded plaintiff attorneys in a private Discord server. Until next time, this is the John and Jordan on Justice Podcast.